Neve's solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neve's includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neve's solicitors, your complete legal solution. And welcome to The Parent Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. This is Cathy West and sadly I'm sort of on my own tonight because I'm without my lovely co-presenters Lydia El Khoury and Shirley Heyman. But I do, I am in good company because I've got lovely David Neal who's helping me on the desks and I'm also joined by Patrick. Hello Patrick who's 10 and he's going to be assisting us this evening as we talk about children's brains, how they develop, uh, a few myths about uh, you know children's brains and what we might actually think but the science doesn't back it up and we'll be talking about learning uh, the best toys that can help our children learn uh, so we'll be joined by lots of fantastic guests first of all we're going to be speaking to Lorcan Kenny now Lorcan is a brain scientist uh, at the uh, Centre for um, Research in Autism and Education in London and after uh, Lorcan will be speaking to some children who have actually been down to his uh, interesting lab and done some wonderful experiments with the team down there and lastly we'll be speaking to Amanda Gummer who is the CEO of Fundamentally Children a fantastic website resource for all parents thinking about Christmas coming up and all those brilliant toys that we want to pack these stockings with so that's the lineup this evening so hopefully we have got our first guest on the phone that's a hopefully in brackets Lorcan Kenny are you there Lorcan I am now it's lovely to hear from you you, do, you people will begin to realize that you have a sort of a similar accent to me but actually you are based in London I am yeah, but yeah. I am from Ireland and Lorcan you are based at the Center for Research in Autism and Education which sounds terribly exciting Mm-hmm. And I'm just reading your bio here because it's so interesting that the variety of things that you do in that department. But in particular, what caught my attention is that you're you have a particular interest in autism, and some of your research projects, Lorcan, will be so interesting to people. You know, does yoga help children with autism get ready to learn? I mean, mm-hmm. what teacher or parent wouldn't be interested in that? Or understanding the lives of young people with SEN attending residential special schools evaluation of inclusive education hubs and um, educating students on the spectrum how do satellite classrooms fare so you're looking at a broad range of issues at science particularly for children with autism is that correct yeah definitely we do a whole host of research that spans from kind of looking at basic science questions to really applied questions that teachers and educators can use to make decisions about what kind of school environments are best suited and things like that. So it's quite a mixture, all right, yeah. And th- those are definitely um, questions that uh, parents and teachers are continually thinking about, you know, because it seems to be sometimes that a one-size-fit-all approach applies in schools and that maybe those institutions aren't as flexible as they should be, you know, depending on how children are learning at different paces or indeed have those uh, special educational needs that you've highlighted. Yeah, absolutely. I think particularly for kids who have... Um, additional learning needs it's all about um, there is no rule in some of those schools there's no kind of one way to make things work and the really really good schools for special education needs are the ones that can adapt and do adapt I think that's lovely so I think I think um, although we'll I think the parents often have the 
question you know if they do have a child with special educational needs like that they're they're wondering can they sort of ask the school to be flexible or 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 they sort of just led by whatever the school you know feels like doing you know what are the kind of policies do you try and feed into those policies in any way um, well, I guess what we try and do is build up an, an evidence base, and then the next the next step is trying to take that evidence base into policy decisions. So we're more about trying to test, kind of um, either just asking children themselves about how they found a particular experience, because a lot of the research out there is kind of um, talking about uh, saying there's a particular group of children who can't have a voice because it's difficult to for them to say verbally what they think about school. So what we do is try and find a way of actually accessing their voice because, of course, they have opinions about their own education. You just need to take longer to get at those opinions if they can't tell you in spoken language. So we do a lot of work at trying to go in and really um, speak with the children, speak with their parents, speak with their teachers, and put all of that information together to see how is the experience kind of from all angles and how can we put that together so that the school can fit within their requirements for the Department for Education and their local education authority and also meet the requirements of the children and the families that they're they're serving, which isn't easy for anyone. Um, There's a lot of competing things going on there, so uh, part of what we're doing is just kind of the first step, which is getting all that information, gathering it, put it all in one place, and then hopefully people can take take that information once it's gathered and compiled and do something with it in terms of making decisions about um, how they're going to plan for future services. Well, I think it's so exciting for parents to know that, you know, you exist, that there is a group of people, you know, down in London, work, you know, engaging with children with autism and listening to their voices and trying to explore ways in which education can be made better for them. So that's very yeah. exciting. If we can just return to sort of neurotypical children, if you like, I think that's the term for children yeah. who are not on the autistic spectrum. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's it's a term that's kind of mostly used within the autism field so some people outside of the autism field are kind of confused by this neurotypical term but it just means non-autistic people. Okay now let's talk a little bit about the neurotypical child's brain. I mean I think as a parent you get the idea from very early on that the not to five years are terribly important. I'm sure you'd agree with that for brain development and then we kind of get the idea that we should be talking to them a lot and you know engaging with them because there's something about the neurons all getting connected. Mm-hmm. And um, would you still agree with that? That's all right and correct? Yep, yeah, definitely. And then we kind of get into learning in the classroom. And I think one of the things I really want to ask you about, people often talk about ways in which children learn, you know, different learning styles. Would that be accurate? Um, so learning styles is something that's incredibly popular and uh, pervasive, even amongst a lot of school teachers believe learning styles to be a thing. The issue with learning styles is we have very little evidence that they exist. So learning styles, uh, as uh, are described, would kind of suggest that different children can pick up information or learn information better if it's presented to them in uh, a style that, that they like. So, for example, there's so many different ways that you can carve up learning into different styles, which is one of the difficulties of doing research in this area, is, you know, at the moment a particular trendy way is to look at people who are supposedly um, visual learners as opposed to children who are, you know, language-based learners. But there's so many different examples between people who supposedly learn kinesthetically, those who learn by doing, those 
uh, who learn in a linear way or so on. And, and the idea is that if you could match a child with the, yeah. the material in the particular style that suits them, that they will learn better. And in order to show that, you'd have to get children, a group of children who are the same in ability or um, a whole host of other things, and present them information in their preferred style and in their non-preferred style. And you need to show that they learn more when they receive the information in their preferred style. And loads and loads of people have done this because educators are really interested in it. And they find time and time and time again that people don't learn anymore in a particular style when you give them the same information wow. to, to pick up. So we are busting a serious neuromyth. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's not... Uh, there, I mean, I think there's something in it. There was a recent study, I think, that was just published in the uh, British Journal of Education, which asked people to rate, you know, the style that they prefer, whether it was learning something with words or with pictures, and then they got them to learn the same pieces of information in both ways, and then they asked them afterwards how much they were able to recall from the bits of information. And they were actually better at everyone, regardless of what they said their preference was, was better at learning the information given to them through pictures, and that's a documented effect. People are better at taking in information given to them in pictures, but those who said they preferred receiving information in pictures thought that they had remembered more. So we prefer learning in our getting information from a particular uh, type of information, but we're not better at it. We so, think we're better at it, yeah. but we're actually not. So it's just a preference, but it actually there's no evidence to yeah. say learning styles actually exist. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, any teachers, they can all stop talking about learning styles. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I mean, the preferences are important and you do yeah. want to follow children's preferences. Of course. You're not yeah. going to, you know, disadvantage the class if you decide to teach them all based on the same type of information. You don't need to give one yeah. child the information as a diagram and the, another child the same information in pictures. You can just do one lesson plan and give it to all the kids. Okay. If you have, as often teachers do, an autistic child in a class of neurotypical children, mm-hmm. where in your experience do the sort of the differences lie in terms of, say, what is required? You know, do do all autistic children have the same needs in a busy classroom or is that very much individual? Uh, it's very individual. So, um, you know, there's, there's so much difference. I mean, there, there is, you know, one thing they all have in common, which is a diagnosis of autism, but there's so many things that they can be different on. And I think the autism diagnosis, it, it can you can have a different range of symptoms from another child who also has a diagnosis. So you might have one, for example, who's very, very sensitive to um, unpredictable sensory information. So the loud bang in the, in the background is enough to um, really throw them off learning. And you might have another autistic child who actually made the loud bang in the background because they're seeking um, lots and lots of sensory input at the same time. So both of those child have the, the uh, those children have the autism diagnosis in common, but actually they're, one of them is really uh, you know seeking loud noise and the other one is really trying to get away from it all the time so it's very much about the individual individual practitioner learning about that particular child and adapting the classroom presumably as much as possible yeah yeah okay and what about the neurotypical children say in the classroom you know what do we what do you know about how children learn say you know in the primary years how does their how is their brain evolving over those early years at primary school yeah so the the well I guess the human brain is always changing. And um, as you said, the the very early years are critically important. So 
you know, when a baby is born, they have almost as many neurons, that's the brain cells that make up the brain, as they're ever going to have at that point. And then during the first kind of two or three years, they'll go through this massive growth, and then they'll have almost a full adult-sized brain by the time they're about three or four. So a lot of kind of initial research was quite confused by this. How does so much learning happen afterwards? But actually, what happens after that is that the um, brain starts to prune away connections that it's not using. So it's a use-it-or-lose-it type of a system. So if we're using connections all the time, they get stronger and stronger and stronger. And if we stop using them, they get pruned away in the same way that we prune away branches on a tree so that the stronger ones can use the limited resources to grow and um, flower. So it's the same in the human brain if, if a connection is not being used. So if you're not doing a particular activity, um, that the brain will say, these brain areas aren't doing anything, we'll get rid of this and we'll use the energy somewhere else. So that results in, and, that, and that's what we call neuroplasticity, which is um, a term that tells us about how changeable a brain is. So at certain points in development, where our, our brains are particularly plastic, which means there's critical periods for learning certain things. So a very famous example is for language. So if you give young children a language to learn, like when they're learning their first language, they can learn it incredibly quickly. They can soak up all of this information. And that's because the brain is, is wired at that time in development to adapt to all the information in the environment. But then if you try and give uh, someone who's kind of past this critical period, or then beyond that is a sensitive period where you can still learn, but not as quickly. And then if you go past that again, it can be much, much more difficult. And actually, if you don't get that information and that exposure to someone at that right point in development, they may never be able to reach full potential in how much they can learn. Um, but Lorca, that sort of implies then when our children are, say, under the age of six, that we should be bombarding them with the kind of the baby Einstein videos, the stimuli, visual stimuli, you know, overstimulate stimulate them, if you like. Well, yeah, you don't want to overstimulate them because then they might become stressed out. And okay. that's something we do know that will get in the way of learning. Um, but you do want to give them very rich environments, yes. Yeah. So you want to give them lots of exposure to language. So we know that um, the language development is very highly influenced by how much language children are exposed to. So there's people who've done incredibly detailed research where they've gone into people's homes and recorded everything they've said over a period of years and found that if a child was growing up in a home where their parents have a broader vocabulary and use more words around the children, those children go on to end up having broader vocabularies themselves. So instead of kind of baby speak and, you know, uh, not using full range of words with them, you, you know, you should be kind of speaking to them in using as much language as possible rather than as little. But there is a trade-off, of course, because if you are speaking to a child and they have no interest in what you're saying, they're not going to listen. And if they're not engaged, then they're not going to be learning. What, what about parents who are raising children um, who are autistic and may have difficulties with speech and language? Is it always better to be stimulating in the way that you've described? Or are there, you know, if for parents listening who have, say, children who are on the spectrum, what would you advise them in terms of nurturing brain development? Yeah, so it's quite, it can be quite different if there's um, um, an intellectual disability there or a, a delay in language development. Well, what we'd typically suggest in that situation is actually really pairing back the amount of language that we use. And instead of, um, you know, if a child is struggling to understand an instruction, instead of rewording the instruction and giving it again, 
and then giving it again. What can actually sometimes be better is just stepping back and giving that child longer to process the information. Okay. Sometimes they have the understanding and the language skills to decode and make sense of what the person is asking of them. It's just taking them longer. And if you come and reword it, give them another way of asking the same question, you're going to give them another piece of information to try and understand and decode. And the more things you layer on top of each other, the less likely they are to actually be able to understand what you're asking of them. Well, that's a very interesting point. That's a very interesting point because we want to avoid stressing any of these children out because mm-hmm. that affects learning and it's detrimental. But also, I think as a parent, you think you're adding a question that clarifies and that's helpful and actually you're saying if there's a processing disorder, if you like, they find that layering of questions terribly confusing. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Now, I want to um, ask you about the ex- you know children's executive function, which I think means is all about how they get organised. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, yeah. So that's um, what some of my own research that I'm doing at the moment is actually focused on. I'm interested in these kind of daily living skills, the planning ahead. Lork, and so are we as parents. <laughs> we're, we're all ready with pen and paper here to work out how to get our kids uh, to organise themselves. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the important things about this, actually, which comes back to the, the brain development question, is the part of the brain that takes the longest to reach full maturity is a part called the prefrontal cortex which is right at the very very front of your brain and that's what all of these skills is involved in so and that doesn't reach kind of full adult level until someone's about 20 years old give or take a couple of years so when a when a kid kind of has the language and and intellectual ability that they look like they're fully mature adults we start getting frustrated at them when they can't plan ahead when they can't remember to bring all of the right school books into school, when they forget that they have to bring a musical instrument that's because they've right. got band practice. Yeah. And that's actually because they haven't reached adult levels in those skills and their brain hasn't got there yet. So we need to kind of accommodate for that and not just get frustrated in them and think they're just being awkward teenagers. It's actually that you know those skills haven't yet fully developed. So the sort of the implication for that is in the school in the morning when you're shouting at your children because they haven't got their bags, etc., you're actually saying we, we should have a more compassionate approach because they actually don't have the, the, the brain cells there to actually do it in a way that's highly organised. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it's a trade-off between taking away all of the demands from them because if you do that and you just have hand them the school bag and hand them the instruments and you take away all of the demands then they're never going to develop those skills so you need to you need to exercise this ability kind of in the same way that we think about you know exercising physically if we stop exercising we get less fit so if we stop using these executive function skills we get worse at them and that's that's true of kids and of adults too so it's a fine trade-off for parents to be able to create these opportunities and it can be frustrating if you've got a child particularly maybe who has a developmental disorder who particularly struggles with things and in the school environment often those demands are stripped back so you take away the need for them to decide what job they're doing next you take away the distracting information of all of the things that they could be looking at or listening to around them and you just give them the one task that they want to be focusing on And, of course, that's good because it means they're going to do that task, but it might give them less opportunities to exercise their own executive function abilities and get better at them. 
So it's a little bit of fine balance. Try and keep cool, but give them a chance to practice being more organised. Yes, definitely. Okay. Now, Lorcan, um, we've got um, a few questions that have come in for you, if mm-hmm. you don't mind answering, um, in no particular order. Uh, do you know anything about the effect of screens and gaming on children's brains? Um, to be honest, it's a very confusing literature. Um, there is some good evidence starting to come through now that uh, certain aspects of gaming can lead to improvements in some areas of cognition so that um, people who play lots of games might you know, have faster reaction times or a better ability to perform some of the kind of cognitive tasks that we test people on, which we happen to test people on, on computers. But whether those actually translate to the real world is another question entirely. Okay. Um, so uh, I think, particularly in the, in the autism world, I think technology is going to be a huge asset in terms of the kind of supports that it can provide for people. And typically, there's been um, a kind of... Uh, mood out there that we should avoid screen time for kids and i think that's very true if if what they're doing on the screen is mindless if what they're doing on the screen is helping them in some way then i think the screen isn't the enemy it's it's what they're doing on it okay so it's the content rather than yeah well, yeah uh, why might an autistic child's brain cause him to be very rigid and literal in his thinking and attitudes somebody has asked um okay it's quite a big question um so I think one of the reasons for this, um, so a, a, an account of autism at least that uh, was put forward by the director of our centre here in Cray, is that uh, autistic people may be less able to predict what's going to happen in the world around them. So their, their brains are kind of taking information from the world around them as it actually is. And we take in information from the world around us and we use our past experience to kind of fill in the gap. So if someone says something to us that's a bit vague, we'll use our past experience to make sense of why they've said that and act in an appropriate way. Mm. Whereas some people on the autism spectrum may take that information and not know what to expect from it, and that can be make them quite uncomfortable because they, they don't know what to do with the information, they don't know what's expected of them, and that can provoke anxiety. And we know anxiety is a difficulty for a lot of autistic people. So this kind of uncertainty as to what's going on is only exacerbating that anxiety. So I think um, seeking out things being the same and things being quite rigid is a way of alleviating that anxiety, I guess. Um, and I guess uh, interpreting things in a, a literal way is, is, you know, being able to draw less on past experience to make sense of ambiguity or to be able to, you know, understand that sometimes we use things as metaphor and not always as a kind of literal interpretation. Right, so that's very detailed and interesting answer. Thank you. What do you think, now I don't know what these are, but she, she's asked about, what do you think about ABA programmes for autistic children? Do you recognise what they are? I do, yes. Yeah. So ABA is Applied Behavioural Analysis, which is um, one intervention method, um, which is quite controversial. And it's controversial because when it was uh, founded, the aim that it was founded with was to make autistic uh, children indistinguishable from their peers. And that's very understandably uh, controversial amongst autistic self-advocates who are much more interested in becoming autistically happy people as opposed to less autistic people, which is right. what ABA is aiming for. So there's um, quite 
you know, a, a strong lobby out there for using ABA because there's some evidence that it can um, improve people's scores on autism symptom tests or on standardized tests. But my personal opinion is that because the way it works is you give someone uh, something to do and if they do it you reward them and if they don't do it you withhold the reward which seems very ethically questionable to me in terms of whether you're going to sit down with someone time and time and time again and get them to do an activity and if they finally do the activity you give them a raisin if they don't do it you withhold the raisin which just seems to me a somewhat primitive way to treat another human being Um, particularly if what you're trying to do is just train them to hide their autism which seems terribly unkind doesn't it um in some ways because it's not sort of it's counter what we all know which is that children need to be nurtured for who they are and listened to and yeah and i I mean it it comes i think from for most people from a, a good place they want to be able to go out of the house without their child having a complete meltdown and they want to be able to, to fit get in. through yeah, uh, yeah. a meal time at the table where the child's other siblings don't have to run away in tears because there's unpredictable behaviour and all of those sorts of things which it can help with but I think there's bigger questions that it needs to answer before we can have a look at those sorts of things and say you know is this what we should be aiming for or should we be aiming at making people more aware of and accepting and understanding of the differences that autistic people experience and finding ways that we can help them to um, kind of achieve that. And um, we, we, a couple of last questions for you, Lorcan. I know that you do something fabulous down at Cray called Brain Detectives, which is very exciting. Tell us a little bit about that. We do, we do. It's something um, that we're all very excited about here. Yeah, so Brain Detectives is a science club, I suppose is the best way to describe it, um, where we invite children into the university so that they get to come in and meet some researchers um, who are known as brain detectives and help us with our research. So it's not only just about them coming in and being participants in research, because that sounds a little bit boring and can be a little bit boring. So we wanted to make it a bit more um, interactive than that. So kids come in in groups. We teach them a little bit about how the brain works and about neuroscience and about famous brain scientists, um, which we hope kind of might, you know, give them some motivation to think, actually, maybe, you know, science is a career I could be interested yes, in. Yes, lovely. Yeah, it's yeah, not scary, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Scientists aren't all middle-aged men with scary hair <laughs> and white coats, you know. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing, but also, you know, getting them understanding that, that what's going on in their own brains and that we all have different brains. Well, the good um, news, Lorcan, is that we have two children who are going to speak after you've hung up uh, about being on the Brain Detective Programme. So um, on a very last note before we say goodbye to you, mm-hmm. if any parents or teachers are listening, can they kind of contact you and ask to be part of your research? Or? Yes, absolutely. We have the details about how to contact us and what dates are available on our website, which is Cray, which is C-R-A-E, um, dot I-O-E dot A-C dot U-K. Lovely. And I, I think I've posted that already on Facebook for those of you who's missed it. So, Lorcan, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And hopefully you'll be able to tune in in a couple of seconds when we speak to Bella from Barnet and Patrick from Harpenden about their experience at Brain Detectives. So thank yeah. you so much. I definitely will. Thank you. Bye. Goodness me, I've learned lots and lots tonight about brains, about myths about brains. But we've had the experts. We've had Lorcan so far. Now we've got some 
a couple of other experts, a little bit younger than Lorcan. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. We've got Bella from Barnet on the phone. Are you there, Bella? Yeah, hello. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. And we've got Patrick. Hello, Patrick. Hi. So what age are you, Bella? 11 now. And what age are you, Patrick? 10. And you guys, I hear, have already been down to Brain Detectives at the Cray Centre. Yeah. Bella, how did you find it? It was really exciting and I learnt a lot. And did you do have to, Patrick, did you have to do really weird experiments with like wires on your head and wear a helmet? No, not like that, you know, like you're reading comments. Because it was like, it was like doing lots of games, but not like Minecraft games. As in like, you look at, you do the game and like, they they look at you and they see like how your eyes are moving, etc. So they're doing lots of observational work and having it. Did you find that, Bella? Was it actually fun, even though it sounds like people were studying your behaviour? Yeah, it was actually really fun. And um, you could see, uh, they showed you afterwards, like, how you were doing stuff. Wow. And And did you learn anything about yourself? Can you remember? Yeah. Did you? Um, I learned that, like, everyone looked... Because they showed us pictures and they saw where your eyes eyes moved first. Wow. And um, and I learned that everyone looks at different places first. So that's quite very weird. interesting. <laughs> wow. And Patrick, what would you say if you were if other children were thinking of going down to do the brain detectives program at half term? Would you recommend it? Definitely. And why would you recommend it to other children who might be listening? Because. Some people just think, um, like, they haven't been to brain detectives, they have no idea, like, there is even a brain detective, and they're like, okay, the brain is a thing inside your head which works your body. Simple. Well, it doesn't sound that simple if you, like, learn it properly, because we've been to brain detectives and I've just discovered, like, a whole new variety of things that I could have learnt if I had actually bothered to, you know, learn the brain. So the brain sounds quite complicated. And I think, Bella, did you learn about, like, brain scientists? Uh, yeah. And, like, how they looked at the brain, yeah, it was really cool. Wow, so you both would recommend it. How many marks out of ten would you give brain detectives? Ten. Probably a nine or ten, depending on the weather. <laughs> very good, very good. And Bella, will you be returning uh, at half term this year? Um, maybe. Maybe. Probably. Okay. I'd like to. Lovely. And Bella, just get, let's get your opinion while you're on the phone. What would you say are very good toys for a child your age that help you learn? Puzzles. Puzzles, I yeah. I think. And um, Lego is quite good. Yeah, Patrick, would you say Lego's good for brain activity? Yeah, I'd go for Lego because, like, just thinking about it, the fact about, like, if you're going to start a building or maybe an architecture career, this is, like, this is going to be the beginning. Yeah, so those sorts of toys that can inspire you, that sounds good. Bella, what else would you say, what would you say is your favourite toy, or maybe from the past that you don't play with so much now that Uh you're older? Probably, I don't play with Lego as much now. Yeah. Yeah, so probably Lego again. 
Well, do you know what, Bella? Hopefully, uh, you can tune in, keep listening to Amanda Gummer, who's going to come on in a couple of minutes and tell us all about the toys that she's tested in her fantastic factory that's called Fundamentally Children. So, thank you so much, Bella. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. So hopefully we are going to speak to Amanda Gummer in a couple of minutes. I'll just we're going to give her a ring in the studio. So we'll come back after this very very short break. Thank you. Radio Welcome back to The Parent Show. All about children's brains this evening. We've had Lorcan Kenny, we've had lovely Bella from Barnet and Patrick from Harpenden all giving their input into what nurtures their brain and keeps them um, active. So we're now going to be joined by CEO uh, Amanda Gummer of Fundamentally Children. Are you there, Amanda? Yeah, good evening. Hi. Good evening. It's so lovely to hear from you. Thank you for having me. Well... Fundamentally, I mean, there's so many resources out there, aren't there, for parents? But your website is just brilliant. I would recommend it to every parent because I think you combine all the information about children's development and sort of tie it together with toys, and I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's something that we're passionate about, so it's it's great to be able to give parents that kind of independent. Um, trustworthy because all of the toys and all of the apps that we test are tested with kids as well as as experts so it's really good to be able to give parents that and it's, it is completely free to access so yeah please, please do um, come along to the website and have a look for for advice and, and ideas for toys games and, and and we have a lot of stuff on child development as well it was really interesting hearing um, the your expert working. earlier yeah. um, talking about the, the different learning styles and, and sort of getting rid of that myth and and when I was doing my PhD, which was in sort of neuropsychology, it was looking at how, how people learn a memory. And it was really interesting to, to see that actually it doesn't matter. What, what you're actually after is a different, um, a variety of ways of learning something. It's called multimodal learning. So basically the premise is the more ways you, the more senses you use and the more ways you use to learn something or to experience something, the better it goes in and the easier it, it you can get it out again. So if you're seeing something and hearing it and doing it, then you're much more likely to remember it. Um, and that's where play is so important. Because so, so that's a sort of an example might be cooking, say, yeah. where it's sensory yeah. and there's movement and you're learning about measurement or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of play is very multisensory. And, and, it, and the, the term multisensory has been associated with special needs, but it's it's actually really important for all children to have that kind of to use their sight, their their hearing, their smell, their touch, all of those all of those senses, and and create those really rich memories and learnings that they can then draw on when when they need to. So, uh, and you've just referenced it, but you are actually a sort of a developmental psychologist, aren't you? Yeah, so that's yeah. my my background in um, psychology, and it's it's fascinating for me watching children play with toys and and seeing how they. Um, how they use those to, to sort of develop their brain and, and and learn. And what would you say? I mean, I'm trying to imagine what your office looks like. Goodness me! I mean, do you, is it a bit like you know um, Charlie? What does he got? Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Is it all fun and games and trying games out and children on the floor? You know, with trucks and what's <laughs> it? What's it like? Well, we have um, 
we actually have a really good network of play, play club partners who, who help us out with the testing. So they can be anything from after-school clubs like in the Grove in Harpenden or parent and toddler groups or childminders or sort of just preschool nurseries, anything. We have a, right, a range of, of really great um, settings. So we t- actually test the toys in those settings so that we get their natural behaviour because what we want to understand is how kids really play with toys, not just how they play with toys when they're given a new toy in a kind of lab setting so um we're really keen to watch children's natural behavior with the toys so that's that's why we use those those great settings and um and get kids playing with them as they would play with any other toy so that then it gives us really you know really good feedback so we really know whether a toy is is good or not because actually if you give a a new toy to any child they'll be like hey this is great let's go play with this and um and you have to watch for a long time before you realize whether or not it is actually great or whether they're just it's just a novelty factor so um so when you when you when you talk about great the definition basically mean meaning about the effect on learning um yeah all fun so in the good toy guide we rate things on fun uh, skills developed and ease of use because it doesn't matter how many skills a toy develops and how much fun it is if you can't get to use it very easily um you don't get to access that learning and the, and the fun um, we, we're passionate about toys being fun first because actually that, again, is motivating. So if something is boring, again, it doesn't matter if it's teaching you, you know, calculus. It, if, it's, if it's boring, the kids aren't going to want to play with it. So toys are about having fun. And we all want our children to be grow up to be happy, healthy individuals. And, and learning how to get yourself to laugh or what makes you happy, what, makes, what, what feels like fun to you, that, that's a learning in itself. So we do have toys that aren't what you would call educational toys, but are just really good fun that children use and share with their friends so they're developing all their social skills. And we still rate those as very good toys. So it's not, it's not the good toy guide isn't about just being sort of educational or, or sort of hot housing. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's but, about making sure children are developing naturally through play in a way that, that suits them. Aren't children, I mean, so much more, you know, they're so lucky compared to what maybe we had to play with in 1975 or six or whatever. <laughs> you know, I still remember the toy, the telephone on a string. It was so much fun just bringing that around, you know, after <laughs> me. Yeah, 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 but these the days there's an enormous, child, isn't it? yeah, there's such a variety of toys. It's mind boggling. There is. And we're so lucky to get to, I mean, we, we often get, sort of a heads up on on new inventions or new new toys that have been uh coming to the market because they they sort of um get put through our testing sort of sessions first and so we we're we're really excited to see what's coming through and there's a lot of stuff that helps children develop all sorts of skills and you know as well as just really just fun toys that are just just a bit of a laugh and you know it's the other thing that we're again really passionate about is that it shouldn't be that expensive having play with children shouldn't have to cost the world you shouldn't need to spend you know hundreds and hundreds of pounds on your children at christmas if you can't afford it you need to be able to kind of it's the the most important thing for me is that it's that family life is playful and um you know you can do that with some uh corn flour and and water and make the gloop you know all those those kind of fun fairly you know low cost playful activities and and that just and the other thing that I think it gets really um, 
undervalued is the effect of play on parents. It actually it de-stresses parents. It gives them that kind of release as well. And play is really powerful. Well, too, right? I mean, who doesn't love a bit of play, though? Goodness me. <laughs> um, now, we're going to put you on the spot a little bit, Amanda, because we've got okay. Patrick here who's 10 and he has a question for you. Off you go, Patrick. Amanda? Yes, Patrick. Which toys are perfect for me? Do you know what? We've just tested something called a Sphero. And it's, um, it's a robot that helps, um, helps you learn to code and teaches you about Ooh. robotics. But it's really funky. And it, it sort of helps you learn cause and effect and decision making. So it helps you sort of take control of your life and make sure that you, you can develop your confidence. But it's, it's a really good, fun, um, yeah, programmable programmable toy. So Patrick's 10 and a lot of children at that early teenage stage are very, very interested in technology and coding and that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of really good apps now that, again, we have the Good App Guide, which is, um, I think you were talking earlier about if you're online, you um, you need to be doing something positive and, and the Good App Guide is, a, again, a free resource that people can use to find apps that actually are very of developmentally beneficial I mean, that's so exciting. You've got the Good App Guide and the Good Toy Guide yeah. on your... And I think people can have the confidence in your website that you are actually a developmental psychologist and you're not just sort of shoving things up there because, you know, you feel like it. You've done the research and I think that's what's so exciting about, you know, Fundamentally Children. Thank you. Um, can we just capture the name of the toy that you recommended there? We didn't quite catch it, the robotic coding one. Um, it's Spero, S-P-H-E-R-O. S-P-H-E-R-O. The, the, the Spark Edition robot is the one. Okay. And for other age groups, if ch people are listening who've got young children, you know, wanting to get those brains whirring under the age of five, what would, so you, what would be um, your top tip? There's a company called Smart Games, and again, they do some really cool stuff. Um, they've got, uh, we're currently testing some of their newest games, but they've got games that require strategic thinking, logic, um, as well as sort of creative, they've got sort of a construction, creative construction um, product that's, that allows kids to um, try, you know, make a, almost make their own marble run, kind of those, those sorts of things. Um, and they've got the coding, they've got some basic coding games as well, but they're not, they're not using an app, they're using um, real physical toys. But yes, yeah, Smart Games is, is another really good um, name to look out for. Lovely. Um, I haven't heard of any of these. It's great. Yeah. Family games. Family Brilliant. Games. So one of our favourites is um, Dobble. I don't know if you know it. And it's, um, yeah. it's a card game that develops observational skills. It, it requires you to sort of strategise because you have to, you turn over your card and you have to find things with other people's cards that match. Um, really good party game for adults as well. But it works because it's, there's no reading or... Um, counting there's no sort of school skills involved it's pure observation and Lovely. a little bit of strategy yeah. it's it crosses the generations it's, it works from for all ages so I'd, i i would definitely for a family game put double on the list wow this is great so we've got really good tips there sphero smart games and double uh, for older children what kind of age group do you kind of go up to in terms of your research amanda um our theory is that you don't stop playing because you grow old you grow old because you stop playing so we have games that go right up because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that um a lot of research that shows that um play and and games are really good for for people with dementia and it, it helps prevent dementia as much as anything so um we're um we, we go all the way through 
And what would you recommend, you know, for people who are listening who would like to, you know, go back to board games, for example, is Scrabble, things, Monopoly, are those traditional board games still as interesting? And, um, They're great. Yeah. Um, there, there is a real resurgence in board games. Um, in fact, uh, Georgina, one of our, uh, my commercial director, is down at the board game club in London this evening. Um, and it's it's a real there's a there's a lot of stuff out there that's a bit it's a bit of a a bit of a niche market but there are some really clever board games one of our favorites is logo i don't know if you know that one that's um again a really good family game that you can play um with children as well there's a junior version but even the adult version logo um is a kind of a, a trivial pursuit for brands so you sort of you see the k of a kellogg's and you have to recognize the logo those kind of things so that's a fun game um but yeah the scrabble monopoly risk all of those um traditional games you know they've, they've been around for generations and they don't lose their appeal and there's good reason it's it, they're really they are really good fun uh, there's just so many we've read, written down all of those things things like the rubik's cube that's probably outdated now is it no you'd be surprised um i met the guy who can do it in one second something <gasps> um no it was ridiculous he, was, he just yeah it was it, the world I've got, i met the world record holder for the rubik's cube um last year and he was just oh my goodness phenomenal. um but yeah there's i think that's possibly been taken over by those kind of games are things like bop it um oh we love bop it in our house it's so annoying though amanda <laughs> yeah and the thing with that is it that you know the kids love the interactivity, they love the noises and the lights, but actually that's the thing that irritates the parents. So the parents will probably prefer the kids to have the Rubik's Cube because at least it's quiet. Yeah, but we've also heard earlier that stress is detrimental to learning. So, and Bobbit it is. is really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I it's just because I'm very competitive. <laughs> well, long-term chronic stress is detrimental to learning. If, you are, if you're in a kind of a peak of stress where you're sort of alert and awake because you're kind of you've got that kind of adrenaline rush, it's a really good time to learn. Well, Patrick has a question for you about Bananagrams. Off you go, Pat. So have you ever heard of Bananagrams? I have. They're in the Good Toy Guide. They are fantastic. There's also Apple Letters, Pears and Pears, and there's all, yeah, the whole family of Bananagrams games. They're all really good, and it's, it's a really good fun. We've actually got the garden version of Bananagrams at home, so... Uh, yeah, we like, we love Bananagrams. What's the garden wow. version? It's just a big version. You play it outside. No way. Yeah. Just you can do it in a big, in the garden during yeah. the summer? Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. I tell you what, I want to work where you work and live where you live, Amanda. <laughs> it's just it's amazing. So listen, in terms of people um, who want to get in touch with you and read about the Good App Guide, the Toy Guide, well, tell us what your website is. So it's fundamentallychildren.com. Um, but if that if that's a bit tricky to to kind of write down or remember, just Google the Good App Guide or the Good Toy Guide, and you'll find us. And I think is is your site accessible for children to have a hunt around on, or is it mostly yeah, for you parents? Can, and you can search by age of the child. You can search by if you're a, if you're a kid and you're thinking actually I'm struggling a little bit with my reading at school, uh, but I want I don't want to just be stuck with a load of books. Are there any toys or apps that can help me read? You can search for, you can go, I'm a, a seven-year-old and I want to find a, an app that helps me read. Wow, that you sounds can, good, doesn't it, Pat? Like that. that sounds amazing. What about children with special educational needs? Do you have toys that are appropriate and well-researched as well on your site? Yes, we do. We have a really, um, you know, we're really lucky to have lots of testers who have children with special needs and we really kind of mine the, the, the feedback that they give us 
to make sure we're a big believer in in play being a leveller and being accessible for all and we champion toys that are inclusive um so we like it when i mean the, the example i always use is that a kid playing monopoly maybe in a wheelchair and, and need lots of different sort of special um adaptations to to join in with a lot of life but actually when they're sitting around a table playing monopoly for that half an hour he's just another kid he, he gets to do uh, the benefit of all the the banter and the friendship and the competition and all those learning opportunities that everybody else has so we're a big fan of of prov- providing toys in a way that includes include everybody, everybody. Yeah, isn't that but then lovely? there are also toys that are specifically designed for children who are struggling with a particular challenge well listen amanda it's been amazing speaking to you i'm really excited so Great. thank you so much for listening and well, thanks, uh, for, thanks for coming on amanda and we'll speak to you very soon i'm sure my pleasure uh, so thank you for listening to our show tonight. Thanks to the guests, Lorcan Kenny, Amanda Gummer, Bella from Barnet and Patrick. See you next week. Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.